it's funny, when we started the service, there were, all of these seats were taken and by parents with telephoto lenses. Uh, and now, a little bit of empty room. If you are looking for a spot to sit, right here, where I can just see you, right here. Um, plenty of spots. Hey, good to be with you guys. Um, I am, I'm really excited about what's, what God's doing. And um, as, as Field said, there is um, opportunities to serve at Christmas Eve. And it is so critical for our church. And, you know, I, there's a great story that came after our... Um, our Christmas tree lighting uh, last week and last Sunday night, which was really fun for me. I, if, if you guys were there, it was, it was awesome. It was, so, it was like the greatest experience. It was so fun to be here. But one of the musicians who was here was a trombone player. And this is a guy who gets to go. We don't have like horns every weekend, you know. And so there's this, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of volunteers that do that. And it's not usually our thing. But there's a guy who we, we, you know, we paid him to come play horns with us for the, for the Christmas tree lighting, sing Christmas carols and stuff. It was awesome. And he said to someone on our staff, he said, you know what? I get to be at a lot of churches. I, this is like the best. He goes, I get to be at a lot of churches. He goes, but this is the friendliest one I've ever been to. And I was like, yeah. I mean, so that was all, I mean, that was like, I mean, you don't get to hear that very often because our staff gets to hear that. But I just want you to know, like, that, like, there are a few things that get me as excited about you as that comment. Just like, this is a friendly church. I want to be a part of this church. This is, I go to lots of churches and that one was friendly. And so I just wanted you to hear that affirmation. It's something I thought was really cool. It's something I feel like you have embodied over the past, you know, season. This is who our church is. And people who are new, when I meet them at the door, they say that to me as well. And I just wanted you to know that this is something that we want to become more of. It's something we already are, but want to become more of. And, you know, I'm so glad that, um, that this, is, this is our church. And I'm so glad that that trombone player got to experience what we get to experience every week. And it's our hope that if you're new, you would get that, you would have that same experience. That while we don't do everything perfect, this isn't a place full of perfect people um, this is a place for people who are kind of figuring stuff out of what it looks like to follow Jesus, but we would be people who are sincere and honest in our relationships with each other, and that would be a hope for me. So anyway, just good on you guys. Well done. Um, We're in a series called The Outsider's Guide to Christmas. If you're new, uh, this is a great opportunity to be here. The Outsider's Guide to Christmas is a walk through Luke, the book of Luke, and it is, um, Luke's an interesting guy because he's not someone who grew up in the Jewish tradition. Jesus comes in, you know, he's Jewish, and, he, and that, there's all that. He doesn't, Luke doesn't have that. He's a Roman guy who's trying to write an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, you know, several years after Jesus's, you know, death and resurrection. So he's trying to come to, like, he's kind of like us. He didn't, he's not an eyewitness. So he's, he's always got is the other writings and the actual eyewitnesses, and he puts together an account. This is what Jesus is all about, and, you know, people are wondering, is this for real? Are these just stories Grandpa told us, or is this for real? And so Luke puts together this account of Jesus' life, and it is a great time if you're wondering about who Jesus really is to be here. And for those of us who grew up in the church but aren't totally sure about all of what Christmas is or whatever else there is, this is a really, really good time to kind of get a handle on exactly what's going on. So been very, very cool. Got some great responses from people, and I'm looking forward to today. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we will jump into today's message. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have um, brought us here today. We're grateful that there, um, regardless of where we might have come from, regardless of our story that brought us into this place, regardless of our own experience of joy or sadness or mourning or whatever else it might have been this, uh, this particular week or this past season of our lives, we're so glad that we get to be here. Father, we pray that um, we would know you in a more um, intimate, more loving way. That whatever preconceived notions about what we thought about what it meant to, to walk with you or to be uh, in a church might be done away with. And those things might be replaced by, by you. And so, Jesus, amid everything else that's going on, whether we came in here limping or we came in here, you know, really full of life. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us. 
and even in ways we can't possibly explain. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak to us in stillness and in quiet, that you would open us up to what you would want us to hear today. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in us. And so we give to you a moment of pause in a very busy time in our lives to exhale and to receive from you, Father. Jesus, we're grateful for what you give to us. We're grateful for who you are because in a season of taking and receiving, Father, we acknowledge that it is about you and not about us because you are the Lord. And so we acknowledge you in that today, Father. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Hey, if you want to follow along in your outline, Doug mentioned we have that, what he called the college syllabus. Uh, worth of stuff in a bulletin. In there is an outline if you want to follow along with that. Great. All the scripture, all the Bible stuff you'll need is on there. Everything else, all the scripture, if you don't want to look down, will be on the screen. If you brought your own, you know, digital version of a Bible, you can use that. Or if you're looking, you just really, you, you wanted to use your own Bible, we'll be in Luke chapter 2 if you want to, want to jump in right there. But um, as you're doing that, how many of you guys have heard the expression? Some of you may not have heard it. It's usually used in kind of a derogatory sense. It's the, it's the expression, you only had one job. You guys ever heard this expression before? Yeah, a couple of us have heard this expression. Like, you messed up something so simple, you only had one job. Does that make sense? Right, you with me? So here's a couple of pictures of you only had one job. Here's the first one. You're the best teacher ever. Some of you are like, I don't get it. Okay, well, <laughs> education system. But uh, here's an engraver here supposed to write, you're the best teacher ever, and he certainly or she certainly did that. Next one, here we go. Check this out. Hey, could you put these by the, could you label this, uh, this band here? My favorite band, the Red Hot Chili Paper. <laughs> Next. <laughs> yeah, there's one person who's not supposed to text and drive at the same time. It's that guy, you know. Is there a bee in the cab of the truck? Oh my gosh, oh, wait, we're painting the street here. Okay, good. Next one, here we go. Um, maybe it's the same person who was explaining between you are and your and the conjunction there because that person evidently still te teaches geography also because Asia. <laughs> okay, good. Next one. <laughs> the least helpful arrow in the history of arrows. We well, should probably draw an arrow and tell people where to go directly into that pole. Okay, good. Next. Here we go. Next one. Now, <laughs> as I'm looking for these pictures, there's like a million of this one. Like across the nation, people do not know how to spell school. It's sort of the Sean Connery direction where school is. Kidge, school. I mean, it sort of has that idea. But every, I mean, I'm not kidding. There were like construction people who clearly like graded out the H and the C and had to reverse them so they could spell it right in front of a school. Like how humiliating is that for teachers and, I mean, students everywhere, like, School. Okay, here we go. Next one. <laughs> you only have one job, okay? Your job is to put the candy in the candy dispenser. I got it. Did my job. I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's just torture for some kid too, by the way. Oh my gosh, it's only a quarter. <laughs> 
have, I've got to make sure I said this one next one. Okay, so if, okay, if you're a billion-dollar company, I just want to tell you before I go to the next one because it, people got upset. But if you're a billion-dollar company, let me just tell you, you probably should invest in spell check. Okay, I'm just telling you, if you're like a, a multinational corporation, sometimes you got to recheck your work. You know what I'm saying? Because this is, this is, you know, this is, McDonald's is huge, and they have all kinds of wonderful sandwiches. One of them is the, uh, the, 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 the Big Angus, and I just want you to see how that wound up on the side of a bus. Yeah. A lot of new menu items they got these days. <laughs> Whoops. Okay, go ahead and kill that. I, yeah. I'm going to get enough emails already for that. Um, <laughs> but you only have one job. There's something you're supposed to do. It's so simple and you screwed it up. This is the way. I mean, it's like, man, you got to put whatever. It, but this is like, you got one job. Do it right. Make sure our poster says Angus on it. Make sure that's all. Every, it's going to be all over New York City. Just make sure it said that correctly. Well, as we look at the people who are responsible for Jesus, Joseph and Mary, they have only one job. Remember, there's angels coming to visit them. They have all these conversations that are like, holy smokes, amazing moments as we've led up into Christmas. And they're, they have all this stuff, and they have one job. No matter what else, even if Joseph, if Joseph is a lousy carpenter, if he makes bad bookshelves the rest of his life, it doesn't matter because he, him and his wife, Mary, are supposed to take care of God's chosen rescuer for the whole world. That's all you got to do. If everything else is terrible, but you do that, you're good. You have one job. Okay, and they know this pressure, we one would think. But look what it says in Luke 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. By the way, everybody who's Jewish, this is one of the pilgrimage uh, festivals, so everybody makes their way into Jerusalem for this festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for an entire day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. (laughs) Okay, so... Now, generally, you know, traveling like this for something as big as Passover, people would do in large groups. There'd be everybody together, everybody following along. And there's then that moment that says, as they're leaving, a full day out of the city. Anybody seen Jesus? I don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. Mary looks at Joseph. I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. Well, your, your relatives are the ones who had him last night. Your relatives are the ones. Who was he with? And there's just this constant, bl- you had one job. Well, you had one job, Joseph. And you can imagine the whole chaos and the fight. And it's like, oh my gosh, our 12-year-old son just hanging out in the city. Or worse, we just don't know. We have one job. We've lost the Messiah. Like that's that. I mean, they have to have that moment of, oh my God, what are we going to tell the angels? The angels came and visited us. This is our. This is the great sacred thing. We're respond. What are we going to tell those angels? They're going to be really ticked off. What are we supposed to do now? What if they get angry? I mean, well, it's your fault. I mean, you can just imagine the fight because you know maybe some of you have had that moment where you, with two cars and the parents and whatever, if you have your kids and you both leave and get to somewhere and realize, where's the kids? I thought you had the kids. Oh my gosh, they're by themselves and you break every traffic law. You're only you're, you're you know. They're asleep in bed, but you just think, oh my gosh, they're going to die. A terrorist will invade our house because we're not there. You know, whatever it is. But you have that holy terror moment, and this is what's happening to them here. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him, which is responsible parenting. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, a couple things are happening here. First, which isn't really explained. Jesus is there for three days. Meaning, someone's taking care of the 12-year-old who's hanging out at the temple. Like, I guess that kid should probably eat something. Anybody have any water? I mean, how does he eat? Where does he stay? Does he spend the night in the street? Where does does a 12-year-old stay in a city? Who knows? That's not answered. But there is this kind of panic here, and you get this other insight from Luke, which he says a lot throughout his account of Jesus' life, that people are amazed by Jesus' understanding, his teaching, or his, his kind of questions that he asks. Over and over again, in fact, the account of Luke, Luke's account of Jesus' life is what's called in the ancient world an encomium, which just means this is something that's in praise of, a biography that's in praise of a person. And frequently in, the, in these... Um, Biographies, you have this phrase, these, these kinds of phrases that, that, that account for um, the intelligence, this, that accounts for um, the quality of mind and the education of the subject of that, of, that, um, of that biography. Now, Jesus is showing this over and over again. He's a super smart kid. And he's kind of embraced this, this Jewish style of learning, which is a dialogue. The teacher says something, and the kids respond with questions, and there's this back and forth questioning kind of, like, kind of learning environment. And Jesus is surprising everybody with how good he is at it. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, astonished isn't like, wow, look, he really is amazing. That's not what astonished means. Astonished literally means that they were outside of themselves, that they were out of place, that they were beside themselves with like horror, shock, amazement. Not like, oh, that's amazing. He really is great. It's been three days without our family. We didn't know where he went. Like that, they're, they're beside themselves with anger and frustration. Uh, his mother said to him, son, notice, l- notice the little mother guilt tinge here. Just notice, moms, you all have this, this little, this ability to say this. Son, why have you treated us like this? Not a whole lot of laughter about that. Uh, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, moms, you all have this gear. You have this ability to say things in this way. You all, I mean, you know, all of our mothers had it as well. You know, sometimes it's just, a, it's, a, it's a tone. It's the way things are stretched out when we say them to our kid, whatever it is. Sometimes it's a look. I got, I got a look more than anything else from my mom. And she's not here today, but... but I mean, I would, she would acknowledge this. I got the, like, pursed lips of shame. Just this right here, the, that right there, Jeffrey. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, what did I do? Like, I have that shame still, like, like that thing. I don't know, whatever it is. But you can imagine here that Mary's looking at Jesus and going, Jesus? <laughs> really? It's been three days. Like, how do you, now again, remember, she's raising God's chosen rescuer for the entire world. How do you discipline that child? We're so disappointed because you weren't perfect. I guess you are. I don't know. How do you, you kind of stumble into this. But they have that moment there, which is really a maternal moment. And they're wondering what to do and how to handle it. But there, there is this, this searching for Jesus. And it should give all the readers a little bit of a moment of pause. Like, wait, wait, wait a second. Because there's something else going on here. And Jesus answers what the readers might already know, which is this, verse 49. And again, remember, he's 12 years old. Remember, I mean, just imagine your 12-year-old after he's been gone for three days from you trying to talk to you this way. You better be Jesus, okay? Here it is, verse 49. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Why were you searching for me, Mom? Why were you so worried? I was fine. I'm 12. I can handle myself. You can just imagine, right? You better be the Lord if you do it. Okay. 
Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, there's this uppity 12-year-old saying this. What he says to his mom and dad who have been frantically searching, whatever expense and effort it might have been at that time to travel that far, he says, I had to be in my father's house, or in the King James Version, another, another version of the Bible, another translation of the Bible, it says, I had to be about my father's business. Where are you, Jesus? What are you, we, we're, so, we're so frustrated. We can't find him. All that. We finally find this. Jesus, here you are. And he says, why were you searching for me? Because we're your parents. We have only one job. <laughs> and every, the whole of the history of the universe depends on us doing that one job. That's where, we, that's where we're searching for you. And he says, but I had to be in my father's house. Now listen really closely. In verse 48, you have them saying, your father and I were searching for you. And here's what Luke has in this particular, in, in this case, in this, what Jesus says is, I was at my father's house. Your father and I have been searching for you. I'm at my father's house. I must be about my father's business. Now, there's culturally there's some differences here, but you have to imagine how Joseph might have felt hearing that at that moment. For 12 years, he's been raising this kid as his own son. Joseph and Mary have made that their primary thing. This is their one job. And yet there is Jesus saying to them, yeah, mom and dad, mom and dad, I was about my father's business. Why are you so surprised about that? Now, culturally, again, there's, there's some differences here. Because children are always in the presence of their mother. This is like, it's, children are the role, are taken care of by, by moms always. So you don't have Joseph making a statement here. Presumably he's in the background of this, of this scenario, just kind of standing there. Not, I mean, because it is the mother's job to deal with the child. And Jesus, when he becomes 13 or so, about, you know, 13 years old, he'll join not the company of adults, but the company of men. And he's at that point at 12 years old where you begin to see him break from his mom and beginning to jump into this adult world with men. And he says to his mom and dad who are furious, who are wondering what happened to their son, he says, you should have known where I was going to be because I have to be about my father's business. You see, I have one job and it is to be about my father's business. Now you have to ask yourself, again, readers pausing for a moment going, what? Why don't Joseph and Mary see that? We all kind of know. I mean, he's Jesus. We kind of get it. Why do they not get this? In fact, you know, remember, Luke is writing to people who are interested in the whole story of Jesus. And that story has a Jewish precedent, meaning that there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes before Jesus, that sets up Jesus, that explains his context, and it's a Jewish precedent. So last week, if you're with us, we talked about this a little bit. When a firstborn son is born, he is brought to the temple, and there's, a, there's a, a dual procedure that happens there. It's called the consecration, meaning that they set apart the son uh, for the, the temple. And then there's the redemption, which means that they set him free. And I'll explain that in a little bit more detail. But that's the process that they've already done. We talked about it last week a little bit. And I want to give you a background of this a little bit. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to jump around a little bit in the Bible. A little bit of Bible jujitsu. I'll tell you when it's over. And you'll hopefully we'll, we'll be back together again. But you got to hang with me for a little bit to explain this. Because it it'll make sense. Uh, trust me in a second. All right? Now, here's Exodus 13. Okay? This is Moses has um, just led the Israelites. Remember, this is, a crit this is the defining story of the Israelite people. That they're in captivity in Egypt and they've been freed into the desert. God has done all kinds of miracles. The last of which is in Exodus chapter 12. Which is this plague that you know, comes all across the land. The firstborn are killed unless they make a special mark over their door. The Pharaoh in Egypt says, all right, 
Israelites, you're out of here. You can go. So verse 14, or chapter 4, so we're in chapter 12 is when they're released. Chapter 14 is when they cross the Red Sea. In chapter 13, God speaks to Moses and says, here's a couple things I want you to know. It's on your outline. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate, which means dedicate, set apart for me, every firstborn male. The offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So God says, I'm liberating you from captivity, but your, first, your firstborn belongs to me. Your best, your firstborn, your firstborn male. Remember, this is a male-dominated society. Your firstborn sons, they're mine. Now, moving forward in the story, we don't have a lot to talk about there. Moving forward in the story, in the book of Numbers, the Lord also said to Moses, take the Levites, which is a whole group of people, in place of all the firstborn of Israel and the livestock of the Levites in place of their livestock. The, Le- the Levite- Levites are people who oversee, these are from This is the group of people from whom all the priests come. They're the people who oversee the temple and clean it and and prepare it for worship. And God says, let's take the Levites, and we'll do this. Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn, the livestock of the Levites in place of all their livestock. The Levites are to be mine. Then he puts his stamp on it. I'm the Lord. Verse 46, to redeem, which means set free the Israelites. Collect five shekels for each one. Give all the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites. So, okay, come back to me. So here's what that means. When Joseph and Mary, as we talked about last week, show up at the temple, they're there to do two things. Consecrate, offer their own firstborn son, Jesus, to the temple. And then what's expected that they would do is that they would then pay a five shekel amount to redeem him, which means to set him free from dedicated temple service. Now, Luke goes through a lot of detail to explain some stuff in his account. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 2. We're almost back to where, jujitsu is almost over. Here we go, Luke chapter 2. When the time came, this is last week, verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, by the way, if you're ever reading your Bible and you see the words law of Moses, is referring to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. This is, there's, there's the, what's known as called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, law of Moses, that's that, okay, just so you know. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's the consecration thing. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So they go, Mary's going to offer her purification sacrifice, which Luke tells us, if you are with us last week, that they didn't have enough money to offer the lamb, which is the regular sacrifice, so she had to offer pigeons, which means she's really poor. Now Luke goes to this, all this detail to show you the Jewishness of this, of this particular moment. And the baby is consecrated, but he is not redeemed. Jesus is offered in the temple which is what was customarily done with all the firstborn of Israel, only there, and there's all this record of all this stuff about how, how dutiful Joseph and Mary are about keeping track of all the stuff they're supposed to do and being part of the custom and all that stuff, all the righteousness they observe. But Luke doesn't say that they pay the five shekel price to set their, their own son free from temple service. Now, all that means is this. Jesus is dedicated, set aside, consecrated for God's service in his temple to be about his father's business, but he is not redeemed from it. He's not set free from it. Jiu-jitsu is over. There is something about Jesus which 12 years earlier from the incident we're reading where Jesus is lost, in which he would have been in the, he was presented in the temple, and there isn't a redemption price paid, which means he belongs to God in his own, to be about his father's business. He has one job, Jesus does. It is to be about his father's business. 
Now, there's debate about this for sure, but here's something the reader probably would have caught this, saying, didn't Joseph and Mary remember 12 years ago that they dedicated their son and that at some point he would sort of take on the job of being about his father's business? And Jesus says to his mom and dad, in, in the, where we started, where, when he gets lost, he says, why are you searching? I had to be in my father's house. I had to be about my father's business. And he looks at his mom and dad, presumably, we're guessing here. I mean, this is me interpreting. But he has to look at his mom and, mom and dad and say, mom and dad, you guys did your one job. You had one job. And it was to dedicate me to the temple, to dedicate me to be about my father's business. And you did it. You don't have to be searching because this is where I'm going to be because I'm about my father's business. Verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth. Remember, as we talk about this, Jerusalem is always up. It's up geographically. It's a couple, hundred, it's a couple thousand feet above sea level, but it's also always up in a spiritual sense. People talk about in the Jewish custom about going up to Jerusalem no matter where you are in the world. If you're on the top of Mount Everest, you go up to Jerusalem. Uh, let's see, they went down to Nazareth, so they're returning back home. So then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, which is something Mary does frequently. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. And man, there's sort of the end of the encomium kind of words there, that there's this Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with all the people around him. But you have Mary has a little journey here. Because she goes from being beside herself with frustration to some kind of understanding that what Jesus is going to be about, what he will always be about, is his father's business. He will be about doing these things. Jesus has an agenda. It's, it's, and he's so incredibly dedicated to it. In fact, if you ask, I, I, I'm doing some reading, one of the, you know, if you ask people most of the time, when you ask Jesus, what's like the defining characteristic of Jesus? Most everybody says, including me, would have said, oh, love. And that is the thing that defines him more than anything else. And one writer says, who is a devotional style writer, he's like got a real tender relationship with Jesus. He says, what marks Jesus more than anything else is his obedience. Jesus is so about his father's work. Now, if you're new with us, if you're like not sure about Jesus, not sure about all this stuff, even if you don't believe this is true, the account of which Luke is presenting here is one in which he says, as far as I can understand it, Jesus is someone who is 100% about his father's business. He has one job, and it's about his father's business. Now, Mary's reasonably upset because Jesus' agenda doesn't perfectly line up with hers in that moment. And I think for us, we get upset about that a little bit. We have agendas. We have things that we're working on. We have things that we're working toward. We have things that sort of define the direction of our lives, and when those things in Jesus' agenda for us don't match up, we get a little frustrated. Now, I want to say that even a little bit more strongly. I believe that whatever it is that sets or guides or directs our agenda is the object of our worship. Whatever it is that sets or guides, or directs our agenda is the object of our worship. Here's what I mean. Worship is about an orientation of our lives around a particular thing. It's about our thoughts. It's about the things that we worry about. It's the thing that we're aiming for. That's what worship is. So everything from our thoughts, our prayer, our, our, our focus, our money, our whatever else it is, are oriented more than likely already, without even trying, 
around the thing that has the most of our attention, the thing that sets our agenda. So let me give you a sense of what that looks like, too. For some of us, where our lives are absolutely dedicated and which they circle around is our children. Now, we live in a hyper kid crazy culture. And, my, and myself, this is something I fall into all the time, too. Just us together. That more than anything else, if my kids are better than the other kids, if they're getting more, a better shot at something else, if they can do things better, if they look better, if they have more achievement or whatever else it might be, or they play on whatever team and can do this, and I know that at eight years old, their future is fully determined by what soccer team they play on. But this is my life, and maybe you can relate to that in some way or another, that my kids become the object of my worship. Maybe for some of you in the room, you have a focus in your life which is about getting the next promotion in your job that you're there for a little while and all you can think about is if I can just get to the next level I'll do whatever it takes I worry about it when I'm at home I can never shut my cell phone off I'm never able to not answer an email within the first 30 seconds of getting it because if I don't then that will go away and I want to make sure that's the most important thing and yes I'm at home but I'm never looking at my family or my kids because I'm on the phone Maybe for some of you in the room, you have a preoccupation with your own physical pleasure. Yes, I'm talking about sex. That you're not getting enough of it, that it's something that's always on your own mind. And maybe there's in some way or another, there's lots of corners that have been cut to try to be able to achieve that for yourself. And it's not, and that is the thing which you think about more than anything else. It's the thing which occupies your time and your fantasy and everything else that you've got. And it is got a hold of your life. And it is that thing which is setting the agenda for your life. It is that object that you worship. If Jesus shows us anything, it is how to worship. It is how we orient our own lives because that's what worship is. And he says, I'm about my father's business. I have one job. In fact, that's how Jesus kept getting into trouble with people. The religious authority of the day was always frustrated with him because he kept hanging around with people that were incredibly irreligious. He was hanging around notorious sinners. He was hanging around tax collectors, which are basically government-sponsored rip-off artists. You know? And he hung around with prostitutes and thieves. He hung around with people that he hung around people who were sick with illnesses. And constantly he was confronted with these people who are going, Don't you realize who you're around? And Jesus is going, Yeah. That's what my father's all about. People who have been far from God, he wants to bring them close. That's why I'm here. And this is what people kept getting from. But do you realize this is messing with our agenda? Sorry. I'm not about your agenda. I'm about my father's business. See, what I imagine you're probably thinking is, well, that's, that's really great. <laughs> but what does that mean for me? I mean, really, what does it mean? I want to show you one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It is, it is what's called the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up in another tradition, sometimes it's called the Our Father. Uh, it is a prayer Jesus gives to his disciples who are asking him, hey, how should we pray, Jesus? What are we supposed to do? And he says this. Just, a, just an excerpt from it. Here's what it says in Matthew 6, 9. It says this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That should be on the screen. Can we put that on the screen? There we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I want you to leave that on the screen for just a second. In the book of Matthew, the phrase, my Father, Jesus says it 14 times. Only one time, when he's instructing his disciples how to pray, does he use the phrase, our Father. Which means, 
that whatever it is that Jesus is about, because he's, he's about his father's business, it's also our father. And what specifically is being prayed for, what Jesus instructs his people to pray is, that God's kingdom, whatever, however it's done in heaven, whatever that looks like, that we would be a part of whatever that is, that we would make that look like, whatever heaven looks like, we want more of that here. So heaven is a place where people who, who would have otherwise been excluded from the community of people who walk with God, people who have dedicated themselves to obedience to walk with Him, people who respond to Jesus, who are about the things that Jesus is about, things like, and the things that God's about, justice and compassion and hope, about forgiveness, about sacrifice and generosity. That's what we're praying about. That's our Father's business. You see, there's this other thing too. At the time in which this is written, people, men, boys typically, would go into the same business as their fathers. In other words, everybody grew up with apprentice, being an apprentice to their father's trade. So presumably Jesus would be a person, if he was born like normal circumstances, who would become a carpenter like his own father. That's why Jesus is often called a carpenter as well. Because he would have apprenticed with his father. And apprentices are becoming something that their, that their master, their, which in this case would have been their father, that a master would teach them. And they're done being an apprentice when their work is, a, is no longer distinguishable from the master. And here's then what we have. Our father has a business for us to be a part of that we would be apprenticed to him, that we might be about his business, that whatever kingdom project he's doing while he's around is the same one we're about. Love, generosity, forgiveness, compassion, hope, all of that kind of stuff. Now, we have agendas, and they are easily taken, bought, marketed to, financed, flattered, indulged, such that we might be, we might take whatever, whatever the object of our worship is and move it from being not about God, but about being something else. It is so easy to have that happen. And there's a, there's a million reasons why that happens. I was talking with someone this week, and she said, well, you know, I'm, uh, my, my kid's kind of making some choices I'm not super excited about, and I'm, I, you know, I don't know what to do, and I don't know why he's making those choices, and she kind of has a moment of pause, and she says, well... I think he's lonely. I go, you mean that he's making these choices that are kind of unwise or whatever because he's lonely? And she goes, yeah. Are we any different? I mean, really, so much of our own lives and our own soul, whatever it is that we feel at the deepest level is about loneliness. Do I really matter? Do people really care about me? I'm afraid if I'm really alone by myself that something will emerge and I'll discover something about myself. I'm afraid that if I don't make some of these decisions to move my agenda from what God would have me do to something else, that I would in some way be alone. So I choose unhealthy relationships. I choose business practices that aren't strong. If I'm a student, I choose a kind of life where I have regret, but I'd rather be in regret than be alone. That's us. We're no different. And so God comes to us. Jesus comes to us. Not merely simply saying to us, you're on your own. Figure it out. What he says is, do you want to walk with me? 
Christmas is the story of Jesus who comes, God who comes to walk among us and says, let me, let me remind you that I came to you at great expense, at great cost, so that you might know that you're so incredibly precious. I love what, what Doug said at the beginning. When he said, when he, during the announcements, he said, yeah, I think this is how God sees us. That God's love for us isn't, isn't sort of crowd-based. I love all of these people. It's like I see every single one of you and I love you. And that's why I came to be. So, you, so that the, the, this greatest thing that will rob you of joy, this loneliness, can be done away with. Because you can walk with me and walk with my followers. And we're about our one job. We have one job. In fact, if you wanted to write, and I think under notes it says my one job, your one job is be about my father's business. If you're a note taker, I'd write that down. You know, I was thinking about some of the implications this week, you know, talking about this, about even thinking about forgiveness and compassion. You know, forgiveness is one of those things that's like people like forgiveness, but you don't realize that in order to have forgiveness, you have to have people wounding each other. That if the community abounds in forgiveness, it means there's also a lot of people acting like human beings and making mistakes and people going, we're going to forgive you for that. But I was thinking about generosity, and I was thinking about people at Christmas as they live differently. We got someone uh, posted this on Facebook, and I wanted you to see this. This is a person saying, I want to be about my father's business at Christmas, too. Not just about acquiring things or buying stuff or whatever else it is. I want to be about my father's business. Here's what it says. This is on Facebook. Check this out. It's, it's right there. There it is. Okay, good. Someone from our church. Thinking about Christmas traditions to start for our family, as much as I treasure my memories of extravagant Christmas mornings, I want to change it up with Zach and make Christmas more about giving to others and preparing for baby Jesus' arrival than for the commercial hustle and bustle of the season. I'm trying to figure out a good way to fuse what I love about the traditions I grew up with and the way I want Christmas to be moving forward. Zach is too little to really get Christmas this year, but I want to take advantage of his newness to start celebrating differently. What this person is saying is that my agenda for what Christmas is all about isn't going to be about everything else we could acquire. It's going to be about Jesus. I have one job, to be about my father's business, to be about Jesus. People who walk with Jesus, people who call themselves Christians, followers of Jesus, they have one job. It is to be about their father's business. Now here's what I want you to do. If you're holding your outline, if you're holding a pen or whatever, I want you to put it down now. Just put it on your lap or put it down because I'm going to ask you to pray in a second. I don't want you to do it while you're... So go ahead and put your notes down if, you're not, if you already have notes. Put them down by your lap. Hold on one second. I want you to catch this. Close your eyes for a moment. I want you to consider just, just quietly and in the stillness what it is that has the focal point of your agenda of your life. If you had to boil it down, what would it be? And generally, these are things that are probably good. They're just taken out of context or they're overemphasized, but they're probably robbing you of the life God wants you to have. What are those things? Is it work? Is it really your own kids? Is it a dream about something in the future? Is it an addiction? Is it a habit? Is it a fear or is it an anxiety? Is it a loneliness that is setting the agenda for your life? Now in the stillness, what does it look like for you to say, I'm going to be about my father's business. That I might follow, pursue, listen to, and hear from him as best as I know how. I might ask the tough questions and make the tough decisions. 
does that look like? Jesus, we sit before you. And we call you, Father. And it's our intention, Jesus, that our lives would be oriented around you. Not around getting or acquiring or taking new promotions or finding new, better relationship upgrades or abandoning old folks who have dragged... Father, we want to be about you. It's our prayer, Jesus, that we would be about our Father's business. We believe that you were about it and long, Jesus, to pursue that in our own lives. And so we pray this very dangerous prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Father, would you hear our prayers, people who would walk with you and say, we have one job. It is to be about our Father's business. Would you hear our prayer as we sing it together?